Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we always bring you the deeper discussion about the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with the magnificent Jeff Simmons. Jeff. How's it going? You know, Celeste, you and I have had staggered vacations. It has been so long I have missed your mellifluous voice, which enchants all who are fortunate enough to hear its dulcet tones. Let's not start out the program with <laughs> sheer <laughs> dishonesty and insincerity. No, Jeff, I did miss you. I did miss you. And I can't I quit you. Everyone- I well, here I am. I missed you. I'm glad that we are reunited and it does feel so good as a matter of fact. So welcome everybody. It is the last night of Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah if you're celebrating and these are the last days of 2023. So we all have a lot to look back on. Glad we are here together to do that. And we're going to have two great guests on this hour to help us run down the biggest stories of the year in two specific arenas and specific to New York politics and criminal justice. What went wrong? What went right? And where do we go from here? So earlier I was doing my usual guest slot on Australian Broadcasting Corporation Radio, which I've been doing for, with a couple of exceptions since about 2008, if you can believe that. And I definitely did not have enough time to get to everything that I wanted to talk about that's been in the news lately. This new impeachment inquiry, obviously, the Tesla recall, which is interesting to me on a lot of different levels. And I talked about this huge surge we're seeing in the number of poison control center calls associated with people overdosing on injectable prescription weight loss drugs, which is sort of next level scary to me as well. But Jeff, I know you're always super focused on what's going on in New York as well as national. So what have you had your eye on? Very locally, what I've been watching, Celeste, is all of the back and forth regarding Mayor Eric Adams' round of budget cuts and the impact it's going to have on our libraries, on composting, and so much more. This is something that's going to continue through the budget season. Lots of pushback. And as you probably know as well, the city's largest municipal union, DC 37, has filed suit against the mayor to challenge the cuts and how it's going to impact the workforce, Celeste. Definitely important stuff to be watching. And look, I know sometimes slogging through these budget details can be kind of grueling, kind of painful, but it really, really is important. So I'm glad, I'm very, very glad, Jeff, that you are um, talking about that. And we should be talking more about that. And we've actually had some breaking news just uh, right before the show here, and we are going to get to that as well. And joining us right now is Emily No. Now, Emily is somebody you probably know from reporting uh, for newspapers, for television, lots of different places. Emily is a reporter right now for Politico, and she is the co-author of Politico's New York Playbook. She covers New York politics and government. She also appears on CNN and other outlets as a political analyst. And previously, Emily was an on-air political reporter with Spectrum News, New York One, and she was a reporter for Newsday, somebody I've known for a long time, really like her work, really glad she's here. Emily, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you for having me, Celeste. When you say come on, I just say when. Ah, well, you're a sweetheart, and I'm sure everybody will appreciate it as much as I do when you start telling us uh, what's really, really been going on this year. So I just wanted to jump in and sort of ask you generally, you know, how would you characterize this this year in politics? Everyone always says, oh, it's the craziest year ever. This is the most important election ever. And, you know, a lot of hyperbole, which, you know, I dig it. But, you know, just wanted to check in with you as somebody who watches this stuff really carefully. Where does this kind of fit in, in, in terms of political drama, excitement, importance. I I love when you and others ask me to to step back and and 
give it a little perspective because things happen in such a whirlwind, especially in New York City, New York State, New York congressional um, politics and government. But I would say that on the whole, 2023 felt very much like a scene setter for a very big 2024, whether that was uh, various court proceedings involving former President Donald Trump or some of the investigation, the investigation that was opened up into Mayor Eric Adams's campaign, um, George Santos, the indicted Republican congressman being ousted in creating that vacancy in Nassau County and Queens. That's going to be a very hotly contested special election on February 13th. Um, a ton of news events that sort of set the stage for 2024. We're looking at the presidential election. We're looking at several competitive House races and uh, a third year of an Adams mayoralty. And we don't know exactly what that will bring, but there, there's a lot to it. And on that note, and thanks, Emily, for joining us today. I believe, if I recall correctly, I think your final interview with New York One was a sit-down interview with Mayor Adams. So let's just jump right into Mayor Adams. Obviously, faced a number of really hot issues over this past year. Among them, the most recent scandal involving campaign fundraising. Give us an update on where that stands. Yeah, so the last couple of weeks have been um, a lot for the Democrat who once called himself the, the face of the party, um, sort of a, a Joe Biden simpatico figure, even though the two of them have had a very frosty relationship in this past year. But we found recently that um, Adams's campaign is being federally investigated for potential alleged collusion with the Turkish government and illegal foreign donations. He had uh, not too long ago um, FBI agents stop him in public and seize his electronic devices, his team saying that he had given them up willingly, had offered more um, phones and iPads for them to look through, but he had been in Washington um, for a series of high-profile meetings with Biden administration officials over how to help aid in the migrant crisis here in New York City when he had to turn right around and return almost immediately, just with an hour or two's notice to New York City because his chief fundraiser's home in Brooklyn was being raided by the FBI in a series of documents and folders about the campaign taken for this investigation. We don't know where this will lead. He is fully cooperating with the feds, he says, and he's not been charged. He's not been accused of wrongdoing. But on top of that, uh, around Thanksgiving, there was a filing under the Adult Survivors Act alleging that he had sexually assaulted a woman 30 years ago when they both worked for the city. We haven't seen the subsequent complaint that details that incident, but he maintains his innocence there, too, um, saying that he, he doesn't know this person, that he would never do anything like that because he's a protector. And the thing that has really driven his poll numbers down as of late is something that you were just mentioning, Jeff, is are these budget cuts that he says are necessary across the board to city agencies and city services to offset uh, the very high cost, the billions that it costs to support migrants in the city seen as New York City is responsible for sheltering anyone um, who is in need because of this right to shelter consent decree that is uh, several decades old. And the administration is challenging that in court as well. 
We're talking to Emily No of Politico. And Emily, what has this done to his ability to lead the city? You know, there's sort of three parts to this, right? You get the job and then you do the job and then you try to get the job again, right? So uh, we're sort of in the middle part-ish of that. And what what are people saying about him? Are they saying, well, you know, this is, uh, this is, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty and we should give him a chance and he's still the elected mayor or people saying this guy is not going to last. Why should I do any business with him? Why should I like even deal with him on to the next thing? Where, where is he on that? It's, it's certainly both and something somewhere in between. He still has a very loyal base, including uh, among black and Latino New Yorkers, a lot of church going folks who believe that he's been unfairly maligned. Um, there are others that, particularly in light of these budget cuts, are really pushing back on Mayor Adams, um, hanging on to that issue in particular. A lot of people who are more progressive and left-leaning and left-wing Democrats who are already looking to recruit a candidate who might effectively challenge him in 2025 uh, and primary him so he's getting a lot of criticism, but he has some support as well. It's certainly that support is not necessarily reflected in the polls. There was a Quinnipiac University poll recently that showed him with a historically low 28% uh, job approval rating. This is, I described it in a, in a playbook story, um, as, as being underwater, plunged to depth so deep that that was the first time in the history of Quinnipiac polling registered voters that any New York City mayor had performed that poorly. And then I really do feel that this, this budget cut issue from the November financial plan is something that's going to stick with him for some time, particularly any service reductions in the education sector, because that same poll found that more than eight in 10 registered New York City voters felt that they were, were worried that their lives, their day-to-day lives would be impacted by these cuts. And what was so interesting, Emily, you know, you mentioned that uh, poll where his numbers were incredibly low was that I think it was the day after or within 24 hours, they issued a press release with only a smattering. And Celeste and you and I are used to these press releases with like a litany of quotes from of support from people. And I think there were maybe what, three or five. There were very few people who were defending him in that release. It was kind of a surprise that they even put that out, you know, defending him on that. What were your thoughts when you got that announcement from them, you know, with some supporters in the wake of that poll? Um, there was there, there may have been a secondary um, news release or blast with more quotes. I think there are about uh, nearly a dozen in total from elected mm-hmm. officials, um, labor leaders, and community leaders. And it was first of all signaled that they were worried about these poll numbers and wanted to show that they did have some support in the city among influential figures. But his poll numbers among Latino New Yorkers especially are, are low and concerning. And there were uh, Latino leaders, including Congressman Adriana Espaillat, uh, on that list of, of statements defending the mayor and talking about everything that he's done for Latino and Hispanic New Yorkers. So it certainly was City Hall's knee-jerk reaction to show reporters, to show the public, wait, we do have some support here. But uh, numbers are numbers, and City Hall is saying the only numbers that actually matter are, you know, crime rates being lower, not these poll numbers. They're not worried about the poll numbers, but, I mean, that signals that they were worried. And what's been interesting, too, is watching as, you know, as – 
the scandal involving uh, campaign finance has erupted, the, the pushback on the budget, a series of things it's been, and the poll numbers, it's been interesting to see which names have been surfacing as potential candidates to challenge him. I've had two on a show recently, Jessica Ramos and Scott Stringer, both reportedly considering a run, neither would confirm it. What else are you hearing like this? Are people really seeing him as vulnerable right now? Uh, or do you think we are going to be, if he runs again, that we will see the Democratic Party kind of coalesce around him? Because if there is a lot of infighting, it might allow a Republican to, you know, slide through to the into office. I mean, it's so cliched, so I apologize in advance, but it seems a little too early to tell as much as people should be doing their research and doing their vetting and trying to figure out who various wings of the Democratic Party would coalesce. Um, behind, but Jeff and Celeste, there's just been so many names floated every time I have a conversation with a source or an official or an aide. It's, it's new names being floated and, and everyone likes their names being out there, but no one is, no one is super committed to it now because they, they want a good chance to win. Um, I do know and I've reported recently that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, including the Working Families Party, the new, uh, the new co-chairs of the state now, are, are really looking seriously into how they can exploit these vulnerabilities that the mayor is showing now. They feel very validated by some of the findings in this poll and other issues um, that, that show that, that New Yorkers are really concerned about affordable housing, that they're very concerned about these budget cuts. So first and foremost, um, the Working Families Party and others are hoping to push back and restore some of these cuts. And then in the longer term, they are looking to see how they can find one candidate to get behind if that's indeed what they decide to prioritize because it was a very splintered vote among the lefties in 2021 and that sort of allowed um, Eric Adams to emerge as a victor as as a moderate pick but there's a ton of moderate names being floated too least of which is not uh, Andrew Cuomo and Catherine Garcia no one on board for sure, a lot of their aides saying that they're they're thinking about it. Others saying that they're not thinking about it. But there's there's a, a lot of people out there who who want their names in the mix. And Emily, I do want to move on to uh, a few more questions that we have about other topics. But I just got to stop you for there for one second. Andrew Cuomo, like, how seriously should we take this? Are people really talking about Andrew Cuomo making a comeback under these circumstances, or is somebody like basically high on their own supply, or what is that? Um, I don't even know if less. Yeah, they're high in their own supply, floating the trial balloon, taking it seriously. Donors are interested. Um, some polling has been circulated that it's favorable to him. It would be interesting to see if indeed he decides to run, run whether he'd get in while Adams is still in the race or if he'd wait until somehow Adams was pushed out of office, if indeed that happens. But there's a lot of question marks around that. Absolutely. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Our guest right now, Emily No of Politico. Emily, I know as a, a, I, I met you back when you were uh, at Newsday and covering Long Island, certainly more of an expert on it than I am. But I was just thinking that for you, uh, as somebody who's so familiar with the island, covering the Santos thing must be just incredible. And I think we had some news dropping not too long ago. I think Jeff alerted me to this. Thank you, Captain Helpful. Uh, that the Republicans have come up with a new name potentially to uh, get into the action for that seat. Do you know anything about that? 
I certainly do. I've been talking with local Republican leaders and covering this um, for the last couple of days. It's a pretty intensive vetting process. Long Island is is a player in the political landscape. Long Island, because uh, it elected all Republicans to the House this last go-around, probably pretty crucial to Republicans having the majority um, on the Hill as it is now. But they have, since last January, thinking of Nassau County elected uh, and party officials, wanted Santos out of office, wanted him to step down. And it wasn't until recently that he was finally expelled and ousted, but they've been laying the groundwork to figure out who could successfully um, secede him for some time. And they just, this afternoon, um, pardon me, this morning, the Queens and Nassau Republican Party leaders nominated Mazimo Sapilop to be their pick in the February 13th special election running against uh, former Congressman Tom Swazi, who, who is the Democrats' uh, designee. This is an election that will be very closely watched nationally. Oh, there's a ton of outside spending, special interest money that will be flooding it. Uh, but Pillup, as compared to Swazi, is relatively unknown, a compelling backstory that seems pretty well tailored for our political climate as it is now. She is an Ethiopian-born Jew who uh, was airlifted to Israel, living in Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces as a paratrooper, has been recently re-elected to the Nassau County Legislature. Politico did look through some of her records and find that she is an enrolled Democrat, despite having been elected as a Republican to local office. But um, former Congressman Pete King is telling me, among others, that it may not hurt her necessarily to be a Democrat because this is the more left-leaning district. But that is the latest news on that as they have finally coalesced around one Republican candidate. She'll be formally introduced to voters in the public tomorrow in Massapequa and Nassau County. The process was very intense. The, the party interviewed about 20 candidates, and each interview had, I'm learning, between 15, uh, probably 10 and 15 selection committee members sort of sitting in a semicircle grilling the candidate. And Joe Cairo, who leads the Nassau County Republican Party, had enlisted the help of, of two or three outside firms to do the background checks. But a lot of these candidates are flawed for various reasons. Political found not only that Philip is an enrolled Democrat, but something that I just reported now is that she has, uh, that there are legal filings that show that when she was a tie, she had led her husband. She was operations director of her husband's medical practice. That medical practice has been sued, was sued in 2020 for about $70,000 in back rent and still allegedly owes about half, about 500000 more, according to the lease. Um, Nassau County Party spokesman did respond to me on that and say that this is a matter between the landlord and her husband's business and doesn't necessarily pertain to her, but a lot of baggage, a lot of vetting, and, and I think people can't look at these candidates too closely after Santos. And Emily, I know we only have about a minute or two left. What do you? What other stories, you know, stood out for you politically this year and in, in the you know final weeks of the year? What are you going to be looking at? Because I know that next week is the final city council meeting hearing uh, uh, of the year, and it's expected they're going to move on a few pieces of legislation. Just curious on you know what you're looking at, what you see as a standout story or two politically this year. Yeah, certainly the how well or poorly the city is doing in terms of being on track to close Rikers as it's, as 
been legally managed do is something to closely watch. I know that that city council meeting may consider uh, solitary confinement. Um, I would say also just circling back to the house races, uh, the, the path to the gavel in Congress may well run through New York and the redistricting process could favor Democrats, should favor Democrats, which is why a lot of these more vulnerable Republicans are up in arms about um, very aggressive gerrymandering that could come. But I'm looking at, at how fundraising will be conducted for these vulnerable Republicans now that Kevin McCarthy is out of office. He was a very prolific fundraiser. and We have um, Mike Johnson, who is less well-known and trying to get his feet under him in terms of being the kind of money person that McCarthy is. But this is this, this holiday season will be a lot of people trying to reset ahead of what will be a very, very busy 2024. Absolutely. Emily, no, where can people find out more about you and your work? I always wish we had more time. We have tons more questions to ask you. We'll have to have you back. But for now, where can people read your stuff? Yeah, sorry if I was long-winded. I'm very excited about some Not of the stories. Not at all. Are, we are, were short time. Some of them are late-breaking. <laughs> um, the, people should be subscribed to New York Playbook every morning that comes in your inboxes at about 7 a.m. My colleagues, uh, Nick Reifman and Jeff Colt and I really try to get through all the news that we can, all the news you wouldn't be able to find elsewhere. Um, the political homepage has a lot of updated analysis and scoops on Twitter, on television, a little bit. We're, we're all over the place, I promise you. Emily, no, and thank you so much for appearing here with Celestemy. And you know I read that first thing in the morning uh, every single day. So thank you so much for appearing here on Driving Forces today. It's great to be on with you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. Celeste, lots of food for thought. You know, that late-breaking development, I was following Emily's feed on Twitter. Uh, so I'm glad she mentioned for our listeners about the registration of the Republican challenger being Democrat right now. Just uh, uh, amazing. So with that, we're going to move on quickly to our next guest. Something that Emily mentioned was Rikers being in the news. Well, uh, being a topic she's following. Well, that's what we're going to pivot to next. We're going to pivot to another major front we know is of huge importance to New Yorkers, our criminal justice and correction system, including, of course, Rikers Island. Ruvane Blau is a senior reporter with the nonprofit news site The City, and he's the co-author of Rikers and Oral History. He's a tabloid vet, and he's worked at the New York Post and New York Daily News, where he's covered everything about Rikers Island as well as City Hall issues. And by the way, he's a Denver native and a die-hard Broncos fan. Had to mention that. Ruvane, great to have you back here on Driving Forces. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be back. I'm going to jump right into something that you messaged me so we can give the, you know, the breaking news to our listeners right now. I believe you said you've been attending a hearing today on Rikers. Give us the latest on the latest developments on that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, I actually didn't attend it. There's a call and you can kind of listen in, but there was a really pivotal hearing today. I mean, all of these hearings right now are kind of pivotal with in front of uh, federal court judge Laura Swain. And she ruled on uh, multiple issues, but most importantly, she found the city and the Department of Correction in contempt for failing to notify the federal monitor of before opening a specialized unit for people who had like kind of set their who had set fires in the jails. And, you know, it's this kind of a smaller decision in the large, larger scheme of things, but it's incredibly telling because she's currently um, deciding or like kind of going over arguments over a potential receivership. And, what that might look like. And she was just really furious with the department and pointed out that, look, the, that 
former commissioner Louis Molina decides to open this without telling the federal monitor, without kind of notifying anybody and just doing it kind of willy-nilly. People describe the area that they tried to move these into as almost like a dungeon area on Rikers. Um, you know, it was just one of those things. It was just like the, one of the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in some way where it, it just, you know, the judge was just had none of it and just decided to hold them in contempt. And what that technically means is she can actually find them. She, she did say she wasn't going to find them right now. And she ordered the Department of Correction to file all this paperwork and to kind of really work, kind of force them to work more with the monitor and with her, uh, you know, with the judge to make sure that they don't do this anymore and that they give kind of more of a heads up and talk to the, the federal monitor uh, moving forward and, you know, communicate better. Ravine, I'm so glad to have you here on the show with us. Always a pleasure to hear your voice. And I want to uh, pause for a second on what you were talking about there and expand on this just a little bit, the phrase federal receivership. I think most of us pretty much think we understand at least what that means, but what does it mean and what will that actually look like in terms of the operations of the prison, specifically who would be in charge? I'm really happy you asked that question. It's a great question. It's, it's a little bit complicated. So essentially what it means is, that if, they, if the judge decides that this is the, the direction they want to go in, when it, and it does seem like that is where it's headed, although, you know, it could be, you know, you never know. Um, and the decision, by the way, will not be made until at least kind of April, March, um, probably, you know, not even until then. Um, well, what, what it would mean that the judge ultimately will decide on a person to run, and it could be parts of the jail, it could be the entire system. Now, we just know kind of historically in other parts of the country – it's usually part of a system, right? In, in California, it's the healthcare element of the operations of the jail system. Um, in Chicago, it was the juvenile justice element of the jail. It's never been the full system. So that's also in question of how much the receiver, if there is a receiver appointed, how much that person would have and what kind of control. We do know that a receiver would have amazing powers where they literally would not have to abide by the collective bargaining agreements that are in place. So that would ultimately free up the you know, just to completely revolutionize how the jails, how people work in the jails, how they're operated. That being said, even if they have that sort of power, they do need to get some type of buy-in from the officers, from the unions, from City Hall. Like, they do have the power, but it's, you know, it's impossible, as we've seen, to operate in a way without getting some level of buy-in. They also are technically kind of ultimately running jails and essentially answering to the judge, Laura Swain in this case. Um, And it's costly, and they need the budget essentially approved by City Hall. So it's not, you know, it's a takeover by kind of one person essentially, and that person doesn't could be anything from a person with prior jail experience or just kind of management experience. And in California, there actually was an interesting turn of events. They hired, they appointed somebody, and the person spent quite a bit of money. The, you know, the cost of their management was really kind of flagged for about two years, and the judge decided, hey, this isn't working out, and then changed the person and ultimately, you know, brought in someone else. Now, the names are actually proposed by both sides, by the city, by the DOC, and by the other side, like Legal Aid Society, and who, which is kind of the two sides of this kind of ongoing uh, class action lawsuit. And then ultimately, the judge will decide who that person should be amongst that list. So it's, it, there is some level of, like, you know, they have to work together in some degree. But it, we're potentially looking at kind of a very, very different sort of operation. It wouldn't be Mayor Eric Adams anymore, you know, kind of, it would be ultimately the judge taking this on. So when things don't work out, it would really be like the blame would be towards her. And we're talking about a federal judge who has, you know, zero experience in actually running, uh, you know, a, a jail, let alone the size, one of the largest jails in the country, Rikers Island. So, you know, you'd have to bring in a staff, essentially, like a receiver plus likely staff of that receiver 
to kind of take it over. Now, one of the last things I want to point out is, and, and the mayor has, has really highlighted this a lot, and it's really confusing the public, and it's frustrating. He hasn't done it recently. But he keeps on saying that, like, oh, why do I want a federal receiver to take over? Look what they, how they operate the Federal Bureau of Prisons, right? And we know people who kind of have a general idea of how government works can say, yeah, but the Federal Bureau of Prisons, where if you are sent to a federal jail, a federal prison, they're the ones who operate. They don't do a great job there, right? That's where Epstein, you know, hung himself, all these problems. This is not what that would be. A receiver would have nothing to do with the federal BOP. It's called the BOP. It would be its own person, its own independent person, operating, answering, operating, selected by the judge, answering to the judge. City Hall would be, you know, taken out of the equation. That being said, they do need buy-in. So, that, you know, you're not totally taking out politics out of any of this. But, you know, it would potentially be a really kind of a revolutionary moment in the history of Rikers Island. You're listening to Driving Forces with me, Celeste Katz-Marston, and Jeff Simmons on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Our guest right now, Ruvain Blau, is senior reporter for the nonprofit newsroom, The City, covering criminal justice issues. And Ruvain, as you're talking about this, and you're talking about federal receivership, if I'm not mistaken, we just got a new jails commissioner, like just got a new jails commissioner. So how does that fit in? Who is that person, and how does this fit into the entire equation? We did. We did. So she was um, she was kind of a deputy for the last few years. She handled um, the legal affairs um, side of it. She comes from kind of a private law firm. Um, I'm really blanking on her name right now. Lydia, I think, is her last name. Um, she, you know, so she's been part of the DOC for, you know, for I think since 2015. Um, it's telling in that I think it's in some way level similar to the NYPD, where, you know, initially they brought in an outsider, um, somewhat of an outsider. Molina was working, I think, in Vegas at the time. He had done some prior work with the DOC and, you know, in, in Westchester County as well, I think. Um, but at the time, he was an outsider. And and then when he left, right, they bring in a deputy, one of his deputies. It's similar with, with Sewell, where Caban was like kind of a deputy. They bring in a deputy. I think it's very telling. And she's not known around correction circles as somebody who's having any sort of grand ideas or plans or understanding of you know, kind of long history of the system. She's not someone who worked at a CCO. She didn't, uh, you know, as a correction officer, she didn't work as a captain. She didn't work as a deputy warden. You know, her familiarity is very much from the legal side, right? That's her office. She was the head of legal affairs and kind of was in charge of kind of diversifying the, the agency. Um, so I think it's telling. I think it's telling in the sense that, like, who is running the city jails and what's the kind of future, what it looks like. It's the Eric Adams administration, and it's kind of top-heavy, right? Similarly to NYPD, it's still banks. It's Eric Adams. They have ideas on how they want the jails to be run, and they essentially are not putting in someone who's considered, you know, who has, you know, kind of ideas as a reformer, who has kind of a passion, you know, kind of a, a public passion for this. It's, it's a deputy who's been there with a history of legal affairs, which likely, you know, will work to some degree and with the federal monitor, which is kind of the, the main kind of stress point right now. Um, but it's, it's really, you know, it's telling in that it's likely somebody who is going to be controlled very closely by city hall and how they want, you know, how they want things to operate. And that we've seen so far the last close to the last few years is status quo. Right. And the idea, right, that they've been held in contempt now is status quo and, and ignoring oversight, trying to kind of, you know, do their own thing and, you know, take the, take the hits when it comes. 
So, Ravine, in the previous segment with Emily, I had mentioned that next week on December 20th is the final city council hearing of the year. There's going to be a number of bills, several which touch on criminal justice issues like a fair chance for housing that would ban discrimination on the basis of arrest or conviction records in the city. But another piece of legislation that's expected to come up, and I'm hearing from sources that the mayor might not support this, but it might be veto proof if he vetoes this uh, by the council, is uh, the uh, one to end solitary confinement. Talk a little about what this measure would do and how what you are hearing is going on behind the scenes to get this to pass. Yeah, I'm hearing that it's really heating up. I'm hearing that that Speaker Adrian Adams has been working with City Hall to get this done. I, you know, it's, it, I'm hearing that it's kind of taken a bit of a priority. Um, you know, it is kind of incredible as a reporter kind of following the history of this. I, I just take Richard a few steps back if I can to kind of get to you know the latest which is Lillian Polanco passed away. She was a transgender woman. She passed away in solitary confinement in Rikers. It kind of, it was at, during the de Blasio administration and it kind of galvanized literally a, like a national movement to end solitary confinement. She should, you know, reports afterwards came out and, and highlighted that she should never have been in solitary. She had a seizure condition. So people with medical conditions should not have been in solitary. She was there on, you know, some kind of relatively low level sex offense crime that she was accused of. Um, you know, and it really just kind of galvanized a moment of like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Uh, de Blasio, to his credit, did, when he first came in, uh, limited, strictly did limit the use of solitary confinement, to, you know, without people with mental illness, um, people, uh, you know, he limited the days, he limited, like, the number of young people cannot be put there either. So the number went from literally, like, over 1,000 to just, you know, kind of under 100 at, at, at any given moment. That being said, and it's, con- it's complicated, it's con- oh, sorry, it's complicated because literally, like, they call it, they don't call solitary, solitary confinement. They actually argue that it doesn't exist, right? Molina, the, the former commissioner, has repeatedly said, we don't do solitary confinement anymore at all. And they call it punitive segregation. It's essentially like kind of locked in for eight hours. Um, you know, it is, it is some level of like, you know, it's not necessarily always 23 hours without any, you know, with one hour break, but it is, it is you're locked in for quite some time. Um, and the controversy has been, you know, the prior speaker, Corey Johnson, was outright, he was sp- really outright supporting this legislation, was, you know, constantly kind of talking about it, tweeting about it, and, and then ultimately never brought it up for a vote. And it was kind of a shocking moment at the end of the legislative session, his last kind of stated hearing. There was a moment of the advocates were kind of, I think, taken aback because they always just kind of assumed or had felt that he was going to bring this through. So the whole thing reset, at, you know, under the new administration, this new city council as well. But it's, and the lead sponsor is Jamani Williams, who's actually not in the council. He's able to introduce legislation but cannot vote on it. He's, he, he actually was involved. He was a co-sponsor when he was in the city council himself. Um, but it's been two years in counting now, and it's actually been four years if you count, you know, the prior administration. And there's just been a lot of opposition from the Correction Union, which is, has a, a very strong kind of politically connected, um, you know, amongst with Mayor Adams. And there actually surprisingly was opposition also from 1199 and the other two unions that represent healthcare workers in the jails. They're worried that the new rules, which require healthcare workers to kind of check in repeatedly on people who are like kind of temporarily isolated in these solitary cells and they felt like they don't have enough staffing and that they would be kind of getting the blame if if something doesn't go well. So it's, it's messy, Like nobody, nobody thinks this is like a kind of a straight shot and it's complicated. But one thing that's really kind of incredible here is it's, it's really, and it hasn't really gotten as much attention is on a national level, other cities and states, I I was actually at a conference last year in Austin and somebody who kind of leading the national push for this had told me we are not pushing it in other places because we want New York city to introduce this first. We want to show that it can work. And here we are, right, two years later, and it's not ha- it hasn't happened. It's unclear if it will happen December 20th. There's a lot of, op- there's a lot of optimism that it might finally kind of go on, on December 20th. 
Um, but there's also at the same time, there's now since there's been a federal proposal to do the same thing at the federal prisons and to kind of incentivize the local municipalities to do the same. So there's almost like they're almost like this council being somewhat shamed by this federal proposal that's suddenly kind of gaining steam. Um, there's also state legislation that, that, that was passed several years ago that does sort of limit the use of solitary, but they wanted the city council kind of wants to go further. Uh, so it's complicated. Adrian Adams last talked about it publicly. He told uh, Ben Max on his podcast that it would not happen this year. And, uh, you know, we're coming kind of down to the last few days and, you know, it might actually happen. So uh, I guess to be determined. And Ruvain, on you know, sort of relatedly, you have written a lot about um, the issue of reporting of deaths of inmates and what they are making public and what they are not making public. Uh, that's very, very interesting to me from not only like sort of a humanitarian perspective, but also a public information, uh, you know, public access to documents uh, approach. So what's going on there now? Yeah, so this happened a little earlier this year. Um, a new P- uh, PR person came over uh, to handle PR for the Department of Correction. Uh, he was, came over, Frank Dwyer, he came over from the FDNY. And, um, you know, at the end of the administration, when de Blasio was there, the commissioner was, his name was Vinny Chiraldi, and he was a former probation commissioner uh, years ago. And, you know, he's a real reformer, and he changed the policy. And he said, look, we want the public to know when people pass in jail. Like, you know, you can't change things for the better unless, you know, people are identifying when problems are happening. So they, the press team then began to kind of send out notifications. And pretty quickly after people passed, they would send out notifications. Now, obviously, they would try to, you know, get in contact with family members, notify them first. They would never – and if they didn't kind of get in touch with family members, they wouldn't say the person's name. They would kind of do levels of notification. They would notify the press if someone died, and they wouldn't give the name. And then later on, once the family's notified, they would give the person's name. Um, so when Frank Wire came in, they stopped doing it. And it was really a moment where people were kind of like kind of shocked because – here there was no more scrutiny on Rikers Island, and there was a lot more attention being put and, you know, ideas that this is going to, you know, things are going to get better. And then they suddenly kind of decided, hey, we're not going to, you know, let the public know. And ultimately, like, because there's so much attention, generally, like, reporters like myself, um, my, colleague, my co-author, Graham Raymond, he, you know, we generally hear about this stuff. Um, and we'll generally kind of find out about it pretty quickly. But there, there are moments, like, this, this actually, this kind of predates a lot of my report, current reporting. But, like, I, I think when I was at the Daily News, you know, a bunch of years ago, um, I've heard it later, like somebody at, at the time, like somebody who had a PR told me later, like when she had left, she said, you know, there was a time where someone passed away and I was waiting for your call. I had a statement ready to go. And I just, I'd never heard about it. Like, I just didn't know. Um, so sometimes like things do fall between the cracks and you don't kind of hear about it. Uh, so there was a, it was interesting. Like I tend to, as a reporter, not write about these issues because I don't think that the public cares so much. Like kind of, we joke about like how the sausage is made. Um, but I think this one was an interesting one and it did kind of get a lot of attention in part because I think people were just kind of shocked how they were trying to make this sort of like effort to kind of hide bad news um, and to kind of redefine kind of what's actually happening. As opposed to like, you know, making positive changes, they were just trying to kind of hide well, what's going on. Um, so there was a lot of backlash. Initially, the, the department, you know, just their, their reaction was, we asked them, why did you change this policy? They said simply, you know, it wasn't a policy, it was a practice, and we're changing the practice. Like, no excuse, really. And then, you know, Commissioner Molina at the time, it really kind of defies logic. Like he, he actually told the, the, the oversight board, the board of correction, he said that, you know, we did this because, you know, the department prior, the department's prior press team was lazy. They would only put out one big release and they, cause they didn't want to kind of like, they didn't want to engage with, with individual reporters. And I, I should clarify also that their big excuse was, Hey, we're not going to notify the press, but if you come ask us on your own, we will confirm that someone had passed, um, which kind of eliminates the broader press kind of, 
ecosystem, like the like, like the ten ten wins reporters who aren't covering jail, don't have a jail reporter, or any other kind of like you know news site that doesn't have a jail reporter, they would only hear about it right when the when the city would put out a press release. Um, so they said, look, look, you know, we we aren't really hiding it. We're just kind of you know making it you know easier for you guys to get information, which really also defies logic. And so they, their excuse was, we didn't. Melina also argued that oh, the prior press staff was insensitive because they would put out these notifications without telling the people's family members before it. So they would find out about it in the media, which is an outright lie, frankly, because um, firstly, they would only put it out after the family was notified or they wouldn't give us the name. And, and I think the media members, of the media are also sensitive and, and understand that like, if the, you know, we mm-hmm. ask about this and we're told, Hey, look, the family hasn't been notified, you know, can you wait? I generally, you know, I, I know I, you know, I'm careful and, and will not, you know, kind of put out a story until, there's a you know some level of notification as well, so now there's a big push legislatively to kind of force them to do this. Um, the city council, Carlina Rivera, who's chair of the um, you know the public safety committee, she's introduced legislation to actually force the department to do this uh, you know in the future. So basically, what you're saying is you're supposed to call up the Department of Correction every day and say, "Did anyone die?" That's the only way you're going to find out. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of ludicrous, and and I should I should add I actually do do this. We, I, we did another story that didn't get as much attention, but it, understandably, the state Department of Correction does not, right, DOCS, does not do this, right, either. And I actually, I actually owe them a call. Thank you for reminding me. But I no problem. Like several, I'm I Captain Helpful, according to Celeste. That's true. <laughs> I, I usually wait a couple of weeks, and I ask them, hey, give me the list of who died, you know, in your prison. And, you know, they give me a list. Um, um, but, yeah, I mean, it's like, if you can produce this list, why not? I, I think it's one of those things where, like, as a society, right, we're, I think it kind of speaks to the larger problem of Rikers, of the state prison system, where it's like, you know, the people are like thrown away. And I understand, like, you know, some of them have committed some serious, you know, acts and, you know, have, you know, arguably need to be separated from society and, you know, be, you know, in a, some type of rehabilitative situation. But they're still human beings and no one's been sentenced to death, right? And that's what's happening, right? Like, these people are, are, are dying in the, in city jails, in state prisons. And there's actually, when, they, when someone dies, they do a review, and they, they actually decide – part of the review is, is it, is it um, jail-associated? It's not the right term, but there's like a, a similar term, like attributable, sorry. Is it, is it jail or prison attributable, right? Like is this person dying because they were in jail and prison and not getting the proper medical care they would likely get on the outside or because they you know, are having other issues in, in, you know, behind bars? And very frequently that is the case. So here we are. We're, sentencing, we're not sentencing them to death, and that's, but that is actually what is happening. And I think also the public would be kind of shocked to know that, like, on any given year, it's like, I think at the state prison system, it's definitely over 100, it's probably closer to 200, people are actually dying. And, like, a lot of these times, these are cases where somebody has an ongoing illness, right? And we're not, they're not doing the medical parole release. They're not doing any kind of humanitarian release either on these cases. And they just, I think there's an element of, like, we don't want the public to know. Ravine, I know we, we have to be respectful of your time. I don't want to make you late for your, your next adventure here, but I just want to say, first of all, that we genuinely, genuinely appreciate you coming on the program and your outstanding work on Rikers Island and covering these issues because you're right. People need to know. So we appreciate the fact that, you know, that there were reporters out there generally and that there's the reporter you specifically who are out there doing this. So I guess my last question is where can people find out more about you, read your work and get in touch with you if they want to share their own story? Yeah, thanks. Um, and plus, it's, it was, I, I know, I don't know if your listeners know, we work together, uh, you know, at the Daily News, and it, it just really the fondest memories, like, just a ton of respect for your incredible, like, wealth of knowledge, and, and especially, like, in the pol- political arena, like, it just really, 
just an awe of like your depth of understanding and, you know, connections. Oh, it's can, really, you can hear me blushing um, on the radio, so it must be pretty bright. So thank you. Yeah, no, it was, I really, I mean, I, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, really it was an honor to kind of get a chance to work together. Um, and I definitely miss our, miss that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, so I work for the city. It's an online news site. I also um, recently, uh, you know, published a book with a co-author Graham Raymond. It's called Rikers in Oral History. Uh, we interviewed about 130 people, including like officers, former detainees, um, current detainees, everybody, clinicians, chefs, uh, you, know, you name it. And just got a real 360 story of, of the kind of horrors that have existed there and that currently exist. And we did kind of chapters based on, you know, just different issues. Um, because we, we understood like, you know, our, just a kind of a really quick tangent on this, but like initially we're going to do kind of like a, you know, a, a year by year kind of, or decade by decade. And we just realized that like we interviewed people and like the stories were like kind of the same over, you know, decade by decade by decade, like the problems existed in different ways, right? There's not an overcrowding problem right now, but there's, you know, there's other issues, right? And the food hasn't been terrible, has been terrible almost like, you know, the entire time and, you know, stabbings and slashings and mentally ill, like this is just, there's just so many kind of societal problems and systemic problems there that we, you know, really happy to kind of get a chance to highlight for the public in a way that, you know, they've never seen um, before. So, you know, that was, you know, that that's out there, but I, you know, I also cover this on, the, on an ongoing basis at the city, which is, you know, the city, you know, dot NYC, it's an online website and um, we're a nonprofit and we're, you know, going, you know, going through some financial issues right now and really hoping, you know, hoping we can get some support from the public on this and um, just really proud to be part of the group that, you know, that works for them and, have a chance to kind of report on these issues on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. Ruvain Blau is the co-author of Rikers and Oral History. He's senior reporter for The City, an online nonprofit news site that you should definitely read and definitely support. Ruvain, we cannot wait, cannot wait to have you back on the program to talk more about this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So it's always wonderful to hear from very, very special guests like Ruvain Blau of The City, and before that, Emily No of Politico New York. And now we want to hear from you, the specialist guests of all. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. Call in 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. What did you think of our guests today? Emily No from Politico and Ruvain Blau from The City talking about the conditions on Rikers Island. We're doing a year in review right now, the big news of 2023, particularly in regard to politics and criminal justice. So what do you wish the city was doing differently this year? Or do you have something to be grateful for? This Hanukkah, this Christmas season, this new year coming in 2024, what are your big predictions for the year ahead? Let us know. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. The phones are open and uh, Ruvain is right. You should support the city. It is an excellent, excellent news site. They are like a lot of nonprofits struggling to uh, keep doing the, the important, important work that they are doing. And that is very much the same case for us right here at WBAI. And in fact, we talked about Rikers and oral history. And when, so when Ruvain and Graham Raymond, his co-author, had come out with that book earlier this year, we had them on as guests. They were gracious enough. The publisher gave us a few copies of the book. I had checked and I believe there might be one or two still left at WBAI's offices. So if you donate to WBAI, you can receive a copy of that book, but you need to go online, check out at WBAI.org. 
you'll see this spot where you can see what we call premiums. Those are the gifts you can receive. Look, if you even plug in Rikers and Oral History, you'll find that book. You make a donation, which remember, by the way, donations are tax deductible. And it's that time of year. It's the giving season. So go to WBAI.org. It's an amazing, insightful book. It's actually very disturbing when you read those chapters on just the pattern of problems at Rikers over decades, Rikers and oral history. So remember, it's the lesson I do this every week. We bring this up. We let you know that WBAI needs your support. So here's a way you can get a gift by supporting WBAI. Go to WBAI.org. Per, I'll say purchase, donate, and you'll be able to receive that book. But check it out online. That's the way you'll find a, a copy because they, uh, I have to tell you, I was incredibly happy when I was in the Barnes and Noble in downtown Brooklyn, Celeste, this weekend. Mm. And I saw that book prominently placed. It is something, I mean, I don't know if it's the, a Christmas gift, but it could be a gift for someone that you, you know, that you care about, that you know, you know, cares about criminal justice and the issues that we discussed today. Yeah, and absolutely. And it really is. I mean, first of all, Ruvain, as you can just hear, is somebody who has really, really, really deep knowledge of this subject. And he really cares about it on a very personal level. He has spent years and years of his life, dedicated himself and all his outstanding abilities, truly outstanding abilities as a reporter to go into these stories, not just write about this at a sort of very uh, systemic high level, but talk about these people, give people a voice. So that is what we try to do here at WBAI. Go to WBAI.org, give a gift in the name of this program, Driving Forces, and we will send you as a thank you, a copy of Rikers and Oral History, or or you could just take the tax break, take the tax write-off. We we are coming up to the end of the year. You have until December 31st to uh, get in all your charitable donations. Please consider making a gift to this program, to this station. Jeff and I uh, have been working for now over five years. Can you believe that, Jeff? I, I haven't aged a day um, on the radio. Uh, five years <laughs> of uh, giving our time, volunteering our time to this station because we think it's really, really important that there is an independent free speech voice on the airwaves in New York City. The media industry is contracting in a lot of ways. There are some startups coming in. There are some new people trying to get in on the action, but you know the deal. You know the deal. Corporate media is generally in charge of what you see, what you hear, what you read. And, you know, some of those people are out there doing an excellent job, no question about it. But we are a small nonprofit station. We need your help to survive. There is no WBAI, a tradition that's gone on for more than 60 years a part of the voice of the real New York will go away if you don't help us out. Please take a moment this holiday season. Open your heart, open your wallet. It only takes a minute. Just go to the website, literally just a few clicks to do your part to keep independent, free speech, non-corporate media in Alive in New York, wbai.org. You know, and Celeste is talking about making a donation, but there are multiple ways you could do this. You could also become what is known as a BAI buddy, where you give an ongoing contribution. That is what I do. It goes right on my credit card every month. Most folks give 15 or $20. So you can call 
WBAI at 212-209-2950 or go onto the website, set it up that way. It's very easy to set up. And really, over the course of the year, you know, while you're listening to WBAI, you will also know, because how can you forget that you are one of the people who keeps WBAI on the air? That is a warm feeling. You don't just have that at Christmas or Hanukkah time. You have it throughout the year because every month I know, not just because I'm a host here, but because I'm a person who cares about quality radio and free speech radio. I know every month I am continuing to support WBAI. And I don't have to think, oh, wait, I've got to make another contribution now. I do it regularly just by setting up this system to be a BAI buddy. Right. And just think about it. I know this is something that you probably hear from people who want your support, want your donations all the time. But honestly, think about it. How much do you spend on like Starbucks every day or every week really how much do you spend on i don't know like chips how much do you spend on on impulse purchases like i don't know my impulse purchase uh, pitfall is like makeup at the drugstore or something like that how much money do i spend on that versus you know giving twenty dollars a month ten dollars a month to a program like this where you do get to hear incredible, incredible reporters like Ruvain Blau, who is trying to get to the bottom of, of the crisis at Rikers Island, or Emily No, who is keeping an eye on the people that we elect to do our work, but sometimes are doing their own work, maybe even lining their own pockets. We want to bring those people here on the air so you can hear what they have to say, but we cannot do that. We cannot do that anymore without your help. Please go today, wbai.org become a BAI buddy in the name of this show driving forces give to the station uh, in as generously as you can and as often as you can we really appreciate your help and thank you so that is our program for today thank you to our special guests Emily No of Politico New York and Ruvain Blau of The City thanks to our engineer Reggie Johnson and of course to you our listeners and supporters Jeff what do we have coming up well, Celeste, I'm going to be back here this Sunday morning, 8 a.m., with another episode of City Watch. My co-host, Carlos Menchaca, and I are going to dive into that topic that you and I talked about a little earlier, the city budget. We'll be joined by New York City Council member Shahana Hanif. We'll talk about the mayor's plans to cut the budget and how it's going to impact our libraries, composting, education, and much more. And then, given everything that's going on in the world right now, given the normal stress we all face during the holiday season, we thought it would be good to talk about the benefits of music therapy. So we're going to be joined by Toby Williams. She leads a program at the Broken Conservatory of Music, actually a program that Shahana Hanif uh, has funded as well. Real synergy there that I didn't expect. So very, very important topics, very timely topics. 8 a.m. Sunday, City Watch. Tune in then. Celeste, back to you. If you missed any part of the show, you can find Driving Forces on Apple, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. See you on the radio.